America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A day to look at the end of the world. Why? Well, partially because of some threats from Russia, but also from some threats from Washington, D.C. Today is the day the federal government reached its uh, $31.4 trillion borrowing limit. Today. And the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said uh, that she is beginning extraordinary measures to stave off a default. While Republicans in the White House remain at an impasse regarding a deal on raising the debt limit, most Republicans, at least most Republicans in the House, the Senate has been more quiet on this, are saying they will not authorize a rise in the debt limit unless there's some cuts in spending. President Biden says he won't negotiate, which is a terrible position for him to take, and uh, that uh, there will be uh, no movement on this to cut spending until the debt limit is already raised. It has to be what they call a clean raise and the debt limit. Uh, Yellen said in a uh, letter to House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a letter that was posted today, that she will suspend new investments in the Civil Service Retirement and Disability Fund and the Postal Service Retiree Health Benefits Funds, moves that would prevent the government from adding to its debt. Now, what does this mean? It means you will cut off uh, pensions and benefits to uh, uh, Postal Service retirees or to civil service retirees, okay, you could say big deal, except guess what? They're owed that money. And that money will be paid ultimately once the impasse is lifted and they raise the debt limits, the funds will be made whole, meaning the federal employees who have invested in them will not be affected. Uh, they may have some of their payments uh, delayed, however. And uh, meanwhile, the entire U.S. economy could be wrecked with disasters for people who own uh, government bonds, for the credit rating of the United States. The uh, American government has never, ever defaulted before, so it's a serious matter. We've also never been engaged in a nuclear war. You could say, yeah, well, what about Hiroshima? That was a strike to end a war. It was not a nuclear exchange. But uh, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, uh, whose name is Patriarch Kirill, said the world would end, and this is not some kind of apocalyptic religious rhetoric, he's saying the world would end if the West tried to destroy Russia. And this is at a time when the Biden administration is talking, and I think it's appropriate that it should, with the Ukrainians about giving them more support for strikes to liberate Crimea, which uh, has been formally annexed to Russia. It's now, at, at least in the Russians' mind, Russian territory. We've never fully recognized that. But the uh, idea of so many of these devastating strikes that have murdered Ukrainian civilians and destroyed infrastructure and been so irresponsible and horrified the world, many of those strikes come from Crimea. So the United States now is actually talking about authorizing more Ukrainian strikes in that direction. 
The uh, question from Reuters, or the bulletin from Reuters, is uh, an ally of President Vladimir Putin warned NATO today that a defeat of Russia and Ukraine could trigger a nuclear war. Frankly, as uh, a number of people in the West have said, a, a victory for Russia would uh, could ultimately trigger a nuclear war because it would encourage the Russians to do more strikes like this against Moldova and uh, other surrounding countries that have been recognized by the UN and by NATO in some cases. Uh, I mean, the idea that a defeat of Russia would trigger a nuclear war, how? The head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill, said the world would end if the West tried to destroy Russia. Such apocalyptic rhetoric is intended to deter the U.S.-led NATO military alliance from getting even more involved in the war on the eve of a meeting of Ukraine's allies to discuss sending Kyiv more weapons. Some of those weapons are already on their way, like British tanks, which are among the finest in the world. There are a whole series of German tanks that may be sent to Ukraine, which would help them enormously. Uh, the um, um, extraordinary measures in Ukraine, extraordinary measures in the United States regarding <laughs> preventing our economic collapse with a default. Uh, we'll be talking about that a little bit and about what Congress can do with a former chief aide to a former Speaker of the House. How can they actually, with the Republicans in control, do something constructive about this debt ceiling uh, without giving up the demand for reduced spending, but without crashing the U.S. economy. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, John Fieri, who has written a, a very powerful and important piece in uh, Politico about the dilemma in Congress. And speaking about dilemmas, there's a headline from Associated Press, which is actually upset me all, all morning. Uh, the headline, the Department of Justice will not seek a death penalty against the accused Texas Walmart shooter. Do you remember him? Federal prosecutors will not seek the death penalty for a man accused of fatally shooting nearly two dozen people in a racist attack in a West Texas Walmart, Walmart in 2019. The guy involved, whose name is Patrick Prusius, killed, murdered 23 people and wounded dozens of others. Why is he not eligible for the death penalty? If he's not eligible for the death penalty, who is? Why do you have a death penalty if not to go after people like this? The U.S. Department of Justice disclosed the decision not to pursue capital punishment against Patrick Crucius in a one-sentence notice filed this week with the federal court in El Paso. Crucius is 24. He's accused of targeting Mexicans during the August 3, 2019 massacre that killed 23 people and left dozens seriously wounded. The Dallas-area native is charged with federal hate crimes and firearms violations as well as capital murder in state court. He has pleaded not guilty. Federal prosecutors did not explain in their court filing the reason for their decision. A Crucius still could face the death penalty if he's convicted in state court in Texas. 
The prosecutor's decision could be a defining moment for the Justice Department, says the Associated Press, which has sent mixed signals on policies regarding the federal death penalty that President Joe Biden pledged to abolish during his presidential campaign. Do you remember that? That Joe Biden had said he was going to get rid of the death penalty for any federal crimes, and this is definitely a federal crime? Biden is the first president to openly oppose the death penalty, and his election raised the hopes of abolition advocates who have since been frustrated by a lack of clarity on how the administration might end federal executions or whether that's the objective. But why end the execution of a mass murderer who killed 23 people? Is it appropriate for someone like Crucius to get the get death penalty? What about Koberger, who, uh, uh, what is it? It's Dwayne Christian Koberger, who killed those four people in I Idaho so brutally. It, obviously, for people who commit extraordinarily cruel mass murders, isn't the death penalty appropriate? Uh, this is outrageous. Uh, meanwhile, federal prosecutors are still pursuing the death penalty in the case against Saifullo Saipov, who's accused of using a truck in 2017 to mow down pedestrians and cyclists on a bike path in New York City. Why different justice for Texas and New York City? We'll get to that and more coming up on The Medved Show. 1-800-955-1776. The Michael Medved Show. MichaelMedved.com. All across America. It's, it's dangerous for America. It's dangerous for the world. This is the Michael Bedford Show. Okay, why is it, do you think, that there is a decision by the Justice Department? Uh, the president, former president of the United States, Donald Trump, today has a statement where he is calling it the Injustice Department. But uh, the federal prosecutors in New York uh, actually decided uh, just recently that they will be pursuing the death penalty against uh, Saifullo Saipov, who was accused of using a truck in 2017 to mow down pedestrians and cyclists on a bike path in New York City. It's a horrible crime and a terrorist crime. And the decision to seek death in Saipov's case came from the Justice Department under President Donald Trump, who during his last six months, the Associated Press says, oversaw a historic spree of 13 federal executions. Okay, they, they call it a spree as if this was, uh, you go on a shopping spree or you have a drinking spree, this is an execution spree. It's basically a, a proper functioning of our justice system. There are none of those people who are executed who are anything less than absolutely brutal and unquestionably guilty murderers who had exhausted all of their attempts to uh, to exonerate themselves. They, they were unquestionably guilty. And very much like Saipov and very much like Crucius, this killer of 23 people, 
Imagine your relatives were among them. It is outrageous to uh, not go through a change in federal law that would remove the death penalty. That wouldn't happen because it's politically unpopular. When you look at people like this and they're going to be supported and uh, live their lives in prison uh, rather than getting the executions they deserve, and that in almost all cases, there are exceptions, but in almost all cases, the families of victims want the executions. And the executions represent justice. It doesn't show how much you value life to spare the life of a mass murderer. It says how lightly you take the crime of murder, that you, you don't believe that it is as serious as it clearly is. Uh, they say that uh, the difference between the New York case and the case in Texas is that the death penalty was determined under the Trump Justice Department during his last six months in office, he oversaw a historic spree, they say, of 13 federal executions. Meanwhile, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced a moratorium on carrying out federal executions as soon as he came into office in 2021. But he allowed U.S. prosecutors to continue to seek the death penalty against Saipov while the department reviews Trump-era death penalty procedures. Okay, to allow it for Saipov is a good thing. To not authorize it for Crucius, the mass murderer who, by the way, uh, Crucius surrendered to police after the attack, uh, saying, and the police have all this, and this is why him pleading not guilty is so ridiculous. Crucius surrendered to police after the attack and said, I am the shooter. He also said that he was targeting Mexicans, uh, and the prosecutors have brought up that he published a screed online, one of those manifestos, uh, before the shooting, and said he was going to murder as many people as he could in response to, quote, the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Sound like a hate crime, too? I mean, obviously. And speaking of hate crimes and unbalanced uh, media interrogation, uh, Pat Toomey, who is one of the very finest uh, U.S. senators of recent years, he was a great senator from Pennsylvania, serving two distinguished terms. He retired. He's now replaced by John Fetterman, heaven help us all. But Senator Toomey, who's now former Senator Toomey, of course, the new Congress is there. Uh, Senator Toomey was on MSNBC with Andrea Mitchell talking about the upcoming debt ceiling, where he could be, if he were still in the Senate, Pat Toomey could be so helpful in resolving this thing. Here he is with Andrea Mitchell. Listen. The interest payments on our debt adds up to about $400 billion this year, according to the CBO. Technically, this is not sustainable, and it's unreasonable for President Biden to say, I refuse to even negotiate about this. Well, that's, that's a strategy. You know that's a strategy. The Trump tax cuts, some would say, contributed to all of this, and then COVID so, so and the big spending. It. So the tax cuts of 2017 that you referred to as the Trump tax cuts ushered in tremendous economic growth, record low unemployment. Um, wage gains that were outpacing inflation. And today, Andrea, the federal government's taking in more revenue, 
tax revenue than was projected prior to the tax reform. So it's clear that the tax, and by the way, total revenue is above the historical average as a percentage of our economy, corporate tax revenue above the historical average, so that the tax reform of 2017 has been terrifically pro-growth and constructive. Not, not, not a problem here. Although hardly progressive. Let me move on. Uh, uh, Let me move on, though. His little laugh there, but hardly progressive. By progressive, uh, she means uh, not progressive ideologically. She means hardly progressive where it is taking more money from rich people than it is from poor people. Actually, it's highly progressive. Highly progressive. Right now in the United States, at, at, at every level, the, the richer you get, the higher a percentage of your income you are taxed. Now, again, that's progressive taxation. The United States, when you look at it compared to the other 40 nations, the other 39 nations, and the Organization for Economic, Economic Cooperation and Development, the EEOC, the United States has the most progressive tax rate. More, more progressive tax system here in the United States with wealthy people paying a higher percentage of the total tax burden than any other country in the EEOC. Uh, that's worth talking about, and we will be talking about that uh, with John Early who wrote that outstanding piece we have been talking about that proves that upward mobility, uh, Americans of every uh, category in terms of the economy end up making a better life for their children, and most of their children end up earning more money. We will get to that. We're also going to be speaking to Bjorn Lomborg. The... Uh, one person who should have been featured at Davos, but instead they featured Al Gore. Uh, how has the climate change panic damaged economies around the world, and what about climate change and a coming recession? We'll talk about it on the Medved Show. Michael Medved. deeply honored to receive the Michael Medved show and on the Michael Medved show it is an honor to welcome back Bjorn Lomborg who is the president of the Copenhagen consensus and he is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution he is the author most recently of the triumphant bestseller false alarm how climate change panic costs us trillions hurts the poor and fails to fix the planet. His uh, latest piece in the New York Post, under the headline, Leaders Try to Fix Every Problem Like Poverty and Education, But End Up Getting Nothing Done. Even uh, worse, sometimes they don't just get nothing done, they cause damage uh, more than improvement. Uh, Bjorn, uh, what do you think about the uh, the tackling of climate change at the Davos meeting of the World Economic Forum. Hey, Michael, it's good to be back. Uh, well, it is a little bit of a farce. Uh, now, I'm not in Davos, and there may be a lot of sensible things, but the things we hear back 
are the kind of things where uh, I, you may have seen this. John Kerry yesterday told us that in order to live up to the things we've signed on climate, we basically need money, 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 money. He repeated it seven times. Uh, it just uh, sort of it tells you what this is really about. It's about totally unaffordable, uh, partial and ineffective solutions. And, and likewise, we heard Al Gore uh, basically ramping up the fear, which of course is really hard because fear has been sort of constant in much of the climate conversation for the last decade or so. It is unhelpful. It makes us spend money badly. And in some ways, the Davos conversation is just another one of those fearful moments where you try to say, the world is ending, give us all your money. Well, uh, again, you, you're you're talking about the negative impact, but it is profoundly entertaining. Uh, what about this excerpt from the former vice president of the United States, the Nobel Prize winner, uh, Gore? Listen. And the accumulated amount is now trapping as much extra heat as would be released by 600,000 Hiroshima-class atomic bombs exploding every single day on the Earth. That's what's boiling the oceans, creating these atmospheric rivers and the rain bombs and sucking the moisture out of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century. Look at the xenophobia and political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. Um, your response to Vice President Gore, who needs an anger management class, one would think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's absolutely true. Look, so again, Michael, he's highlighting a real problem. It is a problem with global warming, and it's one that we should fix smartly. But of course, you're not actually seeing boiling oceans. What? What, what is that? There, no, there's no such thing. And when you talk rain about bombs, billion. I know, I know. You talk about a billion people and refugees. Remember, back in 2005, the UN predicted that by 2010 there'd be 50 million environmental and mostly climate refugees. No such thing happened. They had to scrub their website. And and so now what they've learned is, well, let's not make those predictions in the near term. Let's rather say by the end of the century and just scare people witless. But these predictions come from really flawed assumptions, like, for instance, assuming that 187 million people are going to get flooded because, as he rightly points out, sea levels are going to rise, but wrongly assume that nobody will do anything about it. Look, that's not the way the world works. We will do something about it, and because we're richer, we'll actually be more resilient. It's likely that we will have fewer people vulnerable to flooding by the end of the century, mostly because we're richer. And that tells you the important point. This is not about scaring people. It should be about finding smart, simple, and effective solutions. Uh, just uh, uh, well, uh, some years ago, actually nine years ago, in uh, Valentine's Day of 2014, there was a very smart commentator who wrote, there is something unsettling about the global power elite jetting into an exclusive Swiss ski resort and telling the rest of the world to stop using fossil fuels. Uh, do you recognize which um, uh, astute observer made those comments? 
Oh, now I'm thinking of may you may be alluding to me. It, it is a good quote, so I'm I'm happy if I did it. Uh, but you know, fundamentally, yep, 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 you wrote it. <laughs> thank you very much. You can't get people on board with policies that are basically saying this is going to be fantastically expensive. You're going to live poorer lives. You're going to live colder, more freezing lives. That's just not going to work. What you have to do in order to fix climate, just like in fixing most other problems, is not telling people you have to do with less. It's about innovation. If we could innovate green energy to be cheaper than fossil fuels, everyone would switch. And so the whole point here is solve climate change like we solved everything else with innovation. But exactly because you're scaring kids witless, because you're making most people believe this is the end of the world, we end up focusing on incredibly expensive solutions that will unfortunately solve very, very little of the problem and that will only be adopted by rich, well-meaning Americans and uh, you know, some European countries, and that's about it. But the reality, of course, is this is only going to get solved if China, India, Africa is along as well, and they, quite frankly, have more important priorities to fix. That's why we need to recognize this has to be about innovation on climate, and then, of course, also opening up the space for all the other issues the world needs to focus on. Okay, um, if, if one of the things that you've written about recently was the actual shocking figures of uh, people who've died from climate-related disasters in 2022. Uh, 2022, the worst year in world history in terms of climate disasters, is it? No, no. So what you have to remember is we have good data for the last 100 years. How many people died from climate-related disasters, so floods, droughts, storms, and wildfires, and extreme temperatures? And it turns out that in the 1920s, about 100 years ago, on average, about half a million people died. Since then, it's not as I think many people would expect because of this constant fear-mongering about climate change. It has not increased. It's actually sharply decreased. In the 2010s, that number was down to about 18,000 people dying every year. Last year, so in 2022, that number was down again to 11,000 people. Now, 11,000 people is still a catastrophe. That's certainly something we should try to avoid, but it's 98% less than what it used to be 100 years ago. Why? Because we're richer, because we're better informed, because we have more surveillance equipment, because we're more resilient. So fundamentally, climate is not the dangerous thing in and of itself. It's climate, if you are not resilient, that is dangerous. And so obviously, one of the important things we need to make sure is that we lift people out of poverty. If you lift people out of poverty, they don't get hurt nearly as badly by anything the weather can throw at them. So again, it is not such that climate catastrophes are killing ever more, they're killing ever fewer people because we are richer and more resilient. Beyond Lomborg, his, uh, his book, which is necessary reading, it's required reading, and his most recent commentaries are posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. The book is entitled False Alarm, and, and what's most important here is he is not arguing do nothing. He is arguing for acting in a more positive, intelligent direction. I know you're calling in from Malmo in Sweden. 
It's the middle of the night. Can you spend a few more minutes with us, Bjorn? Sure. Okay, great. We, we will be right back with actually a list of things that we can do to make a serious difference. We'll be right back. The greatest show on God's green earth. Whoa, <laughs> how, how gross and evil is that? It's the Michael Medved Show. Medved show speaking to Bjorn Lomborg from Malmo, Sweden, where he is right now. And yes, it's late at night and appreciate the extra time. He is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He is the uh, president of the Copenhagen Consensus. Uh, and I believe that now that they've given some years ago the Nobel Prize, really the Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore, uh, someone ought to nominate uh, Bjorn Lomborg in a compensatory way. Has anyone nominated you yet for a Nobel Peace Prize? I, I think so, yes. Uh, but I don't think it fits the political climate right now. But, yeah, I mean, look, eventually we've got to get real and think smartly about how we're going to fix problems in the future. Okay, so uh, tell me if there are three things that we could focus on here in the United States and then around the world. Uh, what would they be? One, two, three. So I'm not going to tell you what it should be in the U.S. because you guys are much better at doing that. But what we have done is look at what are some really smart things we could do in the rest of the world. So remember, about half this world population, so about 4 billion people, are incredibly poor. They live in what's called low and lower middle income countries. So this would be, you know, the Malawis of this world. It would be the Indias and Indonesias of this world. They live on fairly little money. They have many problems. Their kids die from easily curable infectious diseases. There's so many things we can do. In the last segment, we talked about how everybody thinks about climate change as one of these big things that we should focus on. But unfortunately, we can only spend lots of resources and actually help them very, very little. So we've tried to say, well, where could you help them a lot for a little month? And it turns out that there are some incredible things. You just asked me for three. Uh, we actually have 12, but I'll just limit it to three. So we should be looking at education. We should be looking at tuberculosis. We should be looking at uh, 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 better food security. So do you want me to just take one of them at a time? Sure. I w would appreciate that very much. I think everybody would. Brilliant. Brilliant. So the first one is tuberculosis. Remember, for the last two years, everything everyone has been talking about is COVID. Understandable, because look, it influenced a lot of people, especially in the rich world, and killed a lot of people. But beside those two years, the last 10 years, and even just last year, so in 2022, the biggest infectious disease killer was not COVID, it was tuberculosis. Over the last 200 years, tuberculosis killed about a billion people. Most people you've ever heard of in the 1800s, Chopin and you know, Bismarck and everyone else, died from tuberculosis. Now, about half a century ago, 
we pretty much figured out how to deal with that. So we stopped dying from it in the rich world. And so we don't really care all that much. But every year, about one and a half million people die from tuberculosis. Yet it's something that we can very cheaply and effectively solve. It's simply about making sure that we have more money and we're not talking about these trillions that they're talking about in dollars. We're talking about about $5 billion in total per year. That could save almost all of these people. So it could save about 1.2 million people from dying every year. How amazing would that be? It's about getting better testing and it's about getting more drugs. And these are fairly cheap drugs that would ensure that people would actually survive. This is not rocket science. Why aren't we doing that? And what we find is when we ask the economists to do it, every dollar spent would deliver $48 of amazing value to the world if we actually did this, because this would be parents, this would be moms and dads that instead of dying, would actually survive and keep going. They would be more productive. And of course, their families would be in, in, in infinitely better off. Okay, so uh, you mentioned tuberculosis. You also mentioned education. What needs to change in education? And I know that you're in Sweden now. You're from Denmark. Uh, Scandinavian countries, particularly Finland, seem to have education systems that work better than what we have in the United Kingdom or the United States. How do we improve? Yeah. So again, almost all countries feel like they have problems with their educational systems. And one of the big problems is that you have all 12-year-olds in the same grade. So you have lots of 12-year-olds. Some of them are really, really ahead of the game and are incredibly bored. Some of them have no clue what's going on and incredibly lost. And then some are actually at the level where the teacher is teaching. But what if we could get everybody taught at the right level? Now, one of them, one of those ways would be to you know, shuffle everybody into sort of their right class levels. But that would be hugely problematic in so many other ways. But there's one incredibly smart way that's very cheap and that is well documented around the world. This would be incredibly useful, especially in the poor countries of the world. It's called teaching according to the right level. And the point is that you basically put these kids one hour a day in front of a tablet that has a special program that, that, that's already been worked out in their own language and that teaches them at their exact level. So instead of being taught by a teacher that has to uh, accommodate you know, 60 other kids in the, in the class, they are now taught by this program that teaches exactly at, that, at their level. This will cost, so they're not getting the tablet, they're gonna be sharing with lots of other kids, but together with getting solar panels to recharge them and you know, a storage place where you can keep them because otherwise they're gonna get stolen and so on. If you do all of that, it's probably gonna cost about $25 per kid per year. But this would do amazing good because fundamentally they would learn so much more that every year, instead of what they usually learned, they will now learn three years of schooling. They'll become much more productive. They'll become much smarter. They'll go out and they'll help their countries become much richer, which of course will lift them out of poverty and all these other things. And oh, by the way, also actually help uh, deliver some more uh, 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 resilience against climate change. But fundamentally, this would be an incredibly good investment. So every dollar spent would actually deliver $65 
of social good. It's an incredible investment at very low cost. Again, and and quickly, the third point that you made. The third point, so lots of people are still starving. One of the ways that we know we can make more food is by getting more research and development into agriculture. If we do that, we can deliver more, you know, both in the grains that we already have, but also high yields in cassava and all these other things that they use, especially in the poor world. We just need to spend, again, about $5 billion, not trillions of dollars. This is fairly simple. If you spent about $5 billion a year more, to develop smarter, better yields in the long run. We could make sure that many fewer people would be starving by 2030 and by 2050, and we could make everyone richer, partly because it would make the farmers richer, they could produce more, and it would make everyone else richer because they'd have to pay less for their food. This, again, if you spend $1, you'd deliver $33 for social benefit. The point we're simply saying is there are a lot of these incredible investments why are we only talking about climate change where we can do little good at very high cost when there's so many other things we can actually do amazing good let's do the amazing good first have you ever spoken at davos have they ever invited you they did uh, back before i was too annoying uh, so so they actually <laughs> announced me like uh, a global leader for tomorrow or something like that uh but no uh they have not been keen on inviting me back since would you would you fly in your private jet to uh, go to Davos? <laughs> I unfortunately don't have one, so no, I wouldn't. But yes, of course, I'd go down there. I think it's an important place to talk to a lot of important people. Uh, but you know, I'm I'm really happy I get to talk to you, and then we can get that message out in other ways. Well, thank you. The the best way to get the message out, and it's such a hopeful message because it's empowering. It's an indication not that we are all doomed and that there's nothing we can do and we're going to end up living like savages. Uh, we can continue some of the astonishing progress that has been made in the world in the last few centuries. We can continue that in means like those that Bjorn Lomborg has been talking about. Uh, please go to our website, michaelmedved.com. You can read about his latest book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and fails to fix the planet. He's talking not now about climate change, but about climate change panic and the way that uh, people respond. Uh, coming up, we're all going to talk about how the world can deal with the problem of inequality. And the best way is economic mobility, giving people the chance, the opportunity to work themselves out of poverty and into a new life of choices. John Early, a mathematical economist, is uh, the high priest of social mobility and talks about the amazing American record, even recently, in allowing people to rise. We will be speaking to